Lancaster County Senator Scott Martin, a former football and uh, wrestling star, is passionate about moving people from poverty and dependence to prosperity and independence. I recently caught up with him at his downtown Lancaster office. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I am in downtown Lancaster uh, with uh, State Senator Scott Martin. Scott, uh, good to be with you. It's great to have you here, Matt. Welcome back to Lancaster, and thanks for saying it right, too. Well, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. Uh, one of those things you have to learn. It's not uh, Lancaster or Lebanon, right? That's right. Uh, you ain't from around here. That's uh, right. <laughs> so, um, well, before we get into how you actually uh, became state senator of the southern part, of Lancaster County, uh, correct? Uh, yes. And uh, um, let's talk about growing up. Uh, probably what prepared you the most for the state Senate is being the oldest of seven kids, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah you definitely had to you know, build relationships and partnerships. <laughs> Who's going to get the seconds on this? Factions, you know? uh, no, who to gang up on, who not. <laughs> it was good. You know, I, I grew up the oldest of seven kids. Um, my dad was uh, career law enforcement after he got out of the Navy. Um, my mom stayed at home and raised most of us until I went to college. She went to start teaching at St. Anne's Elementary School in Lancaster and is actually still there mm. uh, teaching. Uh, we grew up around Manheim Township here up by Lancaster Airport. I went to Lancaster Catholic High School. Um, and then they had the ability to go on from there and, and uh, play football and wrestle in college. I uh, went to Millersville University. Really moving far away from home and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it's in a weird way. I did a lot of visits to uh, D1 football programs and the wrestling programs, and there was a tremendous overlap. And I had schools literally telling me, you could not do one or the other. And I love both. And mm -hmm. I had success in both. Mm -hmm. And so here I was going to Millersville. They had a legendary football coach, Dr. Gene Carpenter, um, who had been there for 30-some years. Had, Millersville had a great program there. And they were also a Division I wrestling program with uh, Shorty Hitchcock, uh, who was the head coach. So it was kind of like the best of both worlds. And right in your backyard. It huh? is. And yeah. when you have the ability – listen, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. You know, mm -hmm. that was the one thing I quickly learned growing up was the difference between wants and needs. If I would have went to a school much further away, chances were the ability for my family and my younger brothers and sisters uh, to all come and see me play all the time mm -hmm. or be supportive really wouldn't happen. And being in Millersville, they were actually able to come. And I always had – I had a, like a traveling cheer section. <laughs> you know. Filled up half the stadium. So, uh, that's so, right. <laughs> so you're one of seven. Your dad yes. is in law enforcement. Uh, mom stay at home. Uh, and you went through Catholic schools. I yes. Mean, so uh, huh. I'm sure that uh, that was quite a, a burden on your parents uh, they, with seven and, oh, and, and private education. All of us went through. It meant something to my parents to get a Catholic education. Um, now, don't get me wrong. It, it, in order to be able to do that, uh, and there weren't as many programs like there yeah, are today, EITC, to EITC and, and things, yeah. I literally spent so much time, especially when I got to the high school years, um, I would do landscaping at my parish. I would be scrubbing wax. I basically worked at Lancaster Catholic scrubbing wax, polishing floors. This was to help pay To tuition. help pay down my uh -huh. tuition to uh -huh. Lancaster Catholic. Um, and a lot of us did that. As a matter of fact, a funny story. A week after I graduated from Lancaster Catholic, I got a letter in the mail saying I still owed them four hours. <laughs> and so I literally went back and was washing windows and stuff after my senior year. But, you know, in hindsight, you know, I would not have traded that for the world. Mm -hmm. They felt that was best for me. And looking at hindsight and what, you know, 
the way way I've lived my life or or what how I want to raise my kids, I am so thankful that I had that opportunity, regardless if I had to work more for it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, growing up uh, in a large family, Catholic family, uh, was politics uh, a part of the the dinner table discussion? Where did where did politics kind of enter into your bloodstream? I guess you know it. it Really wasn't. My mom has always been a diehard conservative. Uh, My mom, pro-life to her is the number one thing Mm. she always would look at. I mean, Mm -hmm. hard to believe a family of seven (laughs) kids, you know. Uh, And as I got older, and you know, I had the ability after college to play some football. I had a brief stint with the Giants. I played uh, a couple uh, different years in the Arena Football League. Um, I remember you telling me one time your highlight was uh, uh, you were uh, giving snaps to Kurt Warner. Yes, uh, Kurt Warner. Uh, so good Iowa boy. That's my connection to, yeah. to, to Kurt Warner. Yeah, I'm and playing out there who, in Des Moines. Yeah. And so, you know, we got to play with uh, Kurt uh, with the Iowa Barnstormers and against him when I was with the Memphis Pharaohs. And super guy. Whatever uh-huh. one thinks he is, he, he 100% is. And um but I really didn't pay much attention to it. You know, and here I go, I have bad back injury, I have to have surgery, and uh, I had worked part-time with the County of Lancaster uh, in juvenile corrections. I'd come back training the off-season and literally uh, work there. Well, I had to get a real job now. You know, the football <laughs> games and days are over, yeah. so I got a full-time job there. And it took a couple years, but politics crept in from the county level to okay. me. And that's so, how I so got kind of growing up, that was not a part of uh, what uh, you guys were talking about, thinking about. Um, no, nah, very patriotic family. Yeah, love President yeah. Reagan. Love President Bush. Um, you know, I kind of got to admit, once I got to the Clinton years, I was in college. I couldn't tell you very much. You know, it wasn't very memorable, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, uh, but it wasn't really till the late '90s and early 2000s that I started really recognizing. Uh, things I had issues with, how elected mm-hmm. officials carried themselves, their policies, decisions that were being made. Um, and that's what kind of drew me in. And I got involved as someone who never was involved in politics because I kept looking around saying, we need to find someone to change this. And yeah. someone looked at me and said, how about you? Yeah. So so you came in as the director of the Lancaster County Youth Intervention Center. Uh, what precisely did that do? And, and what were some of the things you were saying of like, look, someone needs to, so, as you said, solve that problem? Yeah. The Lancaster County Youth Intervention Center was formerly known as Barnes Hall. It's, it was the county's juvenile detention center and emergency shelter care facility. So any uh, dependent children, abused children, runaways go to the shelter component. Any kids that have committed an offense between the ages of 10 and 18 Instead of going to prison, mm-hmm. this is basically juvenile jail. So give them the, the, the big football player, and he will scare Correct. the crap out of them. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, we, you know, try to get them on the on the right track. And uh, I was, I worked my way up to be director of that facility. Um, we're serving numerous counties throughout the Commonwealth because not every county has a detention okay. center. I started to get involved and was the vice president of the Juvenile Detention Centers Association of Pennsylvania. So I started getting involved in putting my fingers in policy uh, and advocating for certain changes to occur. Um, But that's basically how I learned. And it all came about. I know it's not the purest of reasons, but there was an elected official here at the county that I couldn't stand. Hmm. I didn't like how he treated people, didn't Hmm. like his policies. Um, And literally... I ended up running against my own bosses. Hmm. Um, And the first time I ran, 29 years old, uh, literally um, had just read the county code, uh, was in a six-way primary, never involved in party politics, and I finished dead last in 2003. Hmm. But you would have thought I won the Super Bowl. Hmm. 
And I spent the next four years getting involved in every kind of community group that I could, not just politics, but even with, you know, United Way of Lancaster County, um, Salud Hispania. You you, you still have your job as as the director? Uh, Yeah, I'm still there at the Uh Uh-huh. And... um, so a little odd, a little odd uh, oh, yeah. having run against uh, bosses that uh, you're yeah, still. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if your bosses, if you just didn't, I, it was hard for me to grasp it. Wow. If this person can do it, everyday citizen, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I'm an everyday citizen, I can do this too. And 2007 comes around, I put my hat in the ring again, and it was the exact opposite result. Um, and of course, uh, no one ever predicted. I got sworn in in January of 2008, and a short month time later, we had the the, the recession really come upon us mm-hmm. and required mm-hmm. a lot of tough decisions. And so uh, I so, was so I was forged by fire yeah, as so a county you, commissioner. So you come in, what, January of 2008 as yeah. a, a Lancaster County commissioner. Yes. Uh, and, uh, of course, with the uh, national recession, yeah. uh, certainly hurt uh, state finances. And then, of course, you're so dependent. Uh, as a county on those state finances, yeah. um, you were really thrown into the deep end or yeah. into the deep fire, whatever you yeah. want to call it. But, you know, what was interesting was is that half of what the county did was in partnership with the state, providing human services, right. you know, child welfare, drug and alcohol, behavioral health, uh, aging services. Mm-hmm. And what you really started to tick me off was the fact that these are mandates you want us to do, but then you don't fund them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they play the funding formula games. And we always, even though we team, team, seem to be a, a county that really pumps a lot of tax money into Harrisburg, I think we're the fifth largest county, that we typically were on the bottom five counties when it came to mon- uh, mm. funds coming back for services. Um, but more importantly, um, we inherited quite a mess, you know, a nursing home sale where there was grand jury indictments that happened behind closed doors. We had a lot of capital needs to be met. Uh, but with the recession happening and that happening, really, we had to sit down and say, just like any family sitting around a, k- a kitchen table and say, we need to get our house in order. We need to make sure that we're tight and we're tightening our belts. And that's so exactly what we and, did. You went and raised taxes on every count, <laughs> right? No. no. Oh, actually, <laughs> we, 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 we took a, a different approach. Um, we actually eliminated six departments, um, got rid of duplicative services. Uh, some of them were a little more controversial than others. I think Currently, we're still the only government entity in the history of the United States to ever eliminate a human relations commission. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Um, And, uh, you know, the sun came up the next day, (laughs) yet people still have the ability, if they're discriminated against, to use a service they were already paying for with their state tax dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, We banned project labor agreements. I think we were the first government entity east of the Mississippi River to do that. Which basically increased the cost of capital projects. And and talk about a discriminatory practice, saying only union shops can bid on a public project. Um, Yet there's entities to this day in Pennsylvania that still do that. And I have obviously have the bill to try to uh, ban that practice. But 150 people, it wasn't easy. We had to make the tough decisions. Mm -hmm. But what was the alternative? Yeah. In the recession, we're going to put higher costs. While you know, I have individuals that uh, either were hadn't seen raises in years, took pay cuts to keep their job, or of course, people, plenty of people, lost their job. I'm going to turn around and say, but I got to give uh, this bargaining unit three and a half percent a year. You know, it's just not. There, there's an element of fairness. I believe mm-hmm. with the economy going bad, we needed to contract, mm-hmm. just like a lot of families had to contract with their budgets too. Uh, so yeah, I think you you did some privatization efforts. I think you did yeah. some benefits reforms. I mean, yeah. some th- some of the things, of course, that I think uh, uh, 
we need to do at the state level. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and here's the thing about the state is that, you know, I, I look at it as the glass, glass is half full when it comes to opportunities to change things. Mm-hmm. And you're right. During that time, uh, we ended up saving at least $4 million a year by uh, reforming our health care systems uh, in terms of uh, what it was costing us went from about $29 million a year. And I think by the time I left, eight, mere, eight years later, we were paying $22 million mm. a year. Um, while well, costs are going up for well, everyone costs are else, going up, yeah. up, up for everybody else. Um, so we were able to put reforms in place that I think were long overdue that had not been done for many decades prior to us. And I think we'll establish the county with a good financial base for many years to come. Uh, but I wish the Commonwealth, we could get them going in that same kind of direction. Well, and I guess that's where um, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of other colleagues um, that have come from county government and yeah. that being one of the primary deliverers of human services, yeah. uh, right, to, uh, to citizens. There aren't many others who have that experience that you have to really speak to those issues of how to make sure that, look, that we have a safety net. Right? right, and that we do that efficiently and effectively, and not create what I what I call the the, the safety hammock. Yeah, the uh, hammock. That, that Absolutely. You, that that it's it's more to help people get through a difficult time, not to keep them uh, dependent upon government services. Right. Um, how are we doing in that? Uh, you know, at the state level, and I guess empowering counties. I mean, our counties wanting to uh, be able to address human service needs that way. I mean, give us kind of your perspective of having been in the county. Now, I'm sure you hear plenty from other county commissioners because they know, hey, we got Martin up there. He'll understand (laughs) these issues, right? Well, you know, the nice thing with with my colleagues are you have different types of people that come up and advocate. You have those who want to advocate, who want to do things to reform them and make them more effective at the most efficient price. You clearly can differentiate those folks from the people who come up and say the solution to everything is just give us more More. money. And that is a recipe for disaster. Uh, And most of the folks that do approach me that I have a long relationship, I chaired the Republican Caucus for County Commissioners for eight years. Um, And so those guys know me uh, and what what I like to focus on. And if you were to ask me how I think the Commonwealth Acts versus a lot of the reforms implemented by counties, I think we're failing miserably. Um, You can start off with probably the number one thing that's going to impact our budget. We talk a lot about pensions and those impacts. Mm But if people really want to know, the here and now, the liability right now, comes from the continual increase of about a half billion dollars a year to Medicaid in Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you have an administration that literally wants to look in the eye and say, what do you mean work requirements? There's only a handful of people that that would impact. You know, everyone else is working. And then to find out that the numbers are close to over a half million people who are non-disabled, non-pregnant, non-elderly, non-caring for a dependent – um, who are seeing it. So I, I like in what you just said, and you, you, it's one of my favorite lines. I believe in the safety net. Mm-hmm. I actually worked in human services. Mm-hmm. Um, what I don't believe, but yet what I saw plenty in practice here locally are the people who try to make it a hammock. Mm-hmm. But now they have a lot of allies in Harrisburg who want to keep it being a hammock, mm-hmm. and they want to build more hammocks and many different other programs. And that's the direction Pennsylvania's been heading. That's why we spend more money per Medicaid recipient than any other state. Between us and Missouri, usually it goes back and forth. Um, But the worst part of it is the hidden tax component. A lot of folks don't know that the more we rely on programs like Medicaid, they pay negotiated rates. So, Matt, you go in and you need a $100 service at a hospital, right? 
and you're on Medicaid. Medicaid's going to give that hospital, let's say, 40 or $50 to cover that service. Mm-hmm. What they don't get is in the hospital's turning around to Joe with private insurance and charging him $150 mm-hmm. in cost shifting in order to make up for it. It's a hidden tax a lot of people don't think. So when we talk about the spiraling costs of health care yeah. for uh, those in the private sector yeah. – these That's public why, programs yeah. are a huge driver yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, and and I know that uh, you agree with this that uh, it's uh, there's a human capital cost to this w- as well. That when we deny people the dignity of work, yep. the ability to take care of themselves, their family, and have to be dependent on a check showing up, you know, in the mailbox, uh, we're hurting people that right. we could help really pursue their own American dream rather than being dependent on everybody else to take care of them. And to me, that's, you know, yeah, there is the, the you know, the cash capital cost, but it's right. that human capital cost um, that I, I think is, at the end of the day, even more important yeah. uh, because that one, one, well, we know we can't sustain this uh, economically, right. but two, it's destroying our society when we have more people that are dependent on others uh, to Correct. you know, put food on their table than for themselves to 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 work hard to do what like what you were talking about. You know what? Having to go wash windows or wax floors in order to pay for my 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 tuition. We had the there there was value in that, and you look back on it, and you go, you know what? That taught me some real important lessons. Right, and people were willing to help me uh, and and put their hand out because they saw me working for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of folks that are in that boat and they're looking to get back at their feet and they want to get away from the government. The other victims in this though happen to be the people who truly need this mm. that have Medicaid yeah. and with less and less doctors access accepting those mm. negotiated low rates they create waiting lines right of people who are trying to get service who have legitimate health care needs who who can't work they are literally disabled right, or right. whatnot and now this system is causing them to have to wait months or years to get treatment and because uh, resources are going to those who could be working that and uh, they're not getting those resources that they might otherwise get. Absolutely. We need to keep honoring the dignity of work and what that impact is on on individuals and their families and devise public policy safety nets around that kind of assistance. We are so stretched thin away from that right now um, that we're going to get to the point where we have to make a change because it's going to start, just like on the federal level, when entitlements start squeezing out the rest of your budget, Mm -hmm. the same thing will occur with this program. Now, Governor Wolf has vetoed uh, these reforms twice. Yes. Um, Is there merit to his arguments that he's making uh, why he is vetoing these? Um, And maybe I'm asking you something impossible to do, but uh, look into his mind. What is? Why do you think he is vetoing these things? If it's pretty clear that this is good for the poor, uh, and it's it's just necessary from a cash flow standpoint, we cannot sustain this kind of uh, growth. Right. I think in challenging um, DHS, the Department of Human Services, and hearings, I think they have shown their true motive. Mm. This isn't looked at as a safety net program to them. This is looked at as being access to health care, that it's their right to mm. be able to have it. Um, but I will say recent court action in Texas regarding the Affordable Care Act, which gave us Medicaid expansion, which was a horrible move for Pennsylvania mm-hmm. to engage in. As we watch that go through the courts, we better be prepared um, because my guess is those le- if those legal arguments hold up, we may have to repeal. And you know that in itself could put that program on the right footing again. But beyond that, this should not stop us from putting in 
work requirements, from putting in evidence-based medicine and total population health initiatives that we've shown on the local level work and save costs, get people healthier. We should be working for that in Pennsylvania. The answer isn't just success isn't how many people you enroll and how much right, money you right. spend. And unfortunately, I believe that this, that is this administration's and unfortunately prior administration's yeah. That's their goal. That is not success. Yeah. In fact, I remember asking Estelle Richman, who was the Secretary of Human Services at the time, um, about the growth in numbers. She was touting that as a great success, whereas uh, we would think, hey, getting uh, people off of right. uh, welfare is really the measure of success. Uh, and so when you have those very divergent goals uh, or, or measures of success, this is where I think we have yeah. this conflict. Well, we'll watch again here in a couple of weeks. You had mentioned the two vetoes. The first veto, yep. House Bill 59, contained the work requirements and my total population health initiative was in that as well. That was the two components. And then he vetoed the bill this past year. The ironic part of that is within last that year's budget went very late. Within a couple months of him vetoing that budget, his new budget had to include another 8.2% of state funding, which was the equivalent of almost $400 million increase to keep up with the pace of growth in that program. Hmm. So here we are on the heels Clearly of another an admission yeah, that this is not another budget's here. coming up. You're going to resist reforms and yet keep spending money that we don't have. Yeah, and it's not getting the results we need. So keep everyone needs to keep their eye on that. And always remember this number. That is a $28 billion yeah. dollar program. Yeah. Well, that's the total. Annual. Yeah, annually. Uh, and that's when we're t- spending about $80 billion. That gives you an idea. Because then the rest is education, transportation, yes. corrections. corrections. Yeah, so we're spending. Uh, that is, I know, the single largest uh, portion of all of the state and federal spending that we do in Pennsylvania. Is there a will to continue to press that? I mean, because it seems to me that there's no way uh, you can balance budgets uh, without either implementing those reforms Mm -hmm. uh, or significantly raising taxes. It seems, I don't know, is there another way in which you can address these? I think they're growing at, you know, Seven, eight, nine percent rate right. when our economy is growing at you know two, three, maybe four when we're booming. Right. Uh, you, you, ju- it just doesn't. And we always up. lag because we're not yep. we're not friendly to growing uh, our business economy in Pennsylvania. Um, but our problem is not on the revenue side. Our problem <laughs> continues and will always be on the spending side until we get our house in order. And you can only mask by one-time budget gimmicks or borrowing from you know tobacco settlement funds that only will take you so far and until you're ready and and quite frankly and here's the crux of it if you're in this business thinking you're going to make everybody happy you're in the wrong yeah, business right, right. take pride in the fact that you take off a certain portion of your constituency because guess what whatever it is 40 percent of them or 49 percent of them didn't like you to begin with <laughs> you know you said you were going to do something in particular do it Mm-hmm. And we need to make those kind of structural reforms. I believe that the House and Senate will continue to put, specifically on the Medicaid reform, will continue to put that on the governor's desk. But what we really need is we need pressure from the citizens of Pennsylvania on the governor's office to say, sign this or allow it to become law without your signature. These same reforms are on other programs like SNAP and other things. Why is it so, quote unquote, cruel as he used? You know, I I have to tell the story. I remember seeing a mom and when she heard the administration, we talked about how dare you 
have someone who's pregnant on Medicaid require him to work. Now, it didn't, yeah. but the person was really offended. Like, why is that so bad to want to see a pregnant woman work? I worked yeah. up till the time that I gave <laughs> delivery. You know, and you, yeah, you run into right, those cases. Right. I have also a friend that I know, um, and think about this for a second. He had tongue cancer. Two types. There's the photon and proton type of radiation treatment that you can get. Proton was not covered by his private insurance that he had. Um, he had to pay $111,000 out of his own pocket to save his life. It was the best course of treatment for him. He's paying taxes to fund a Medicaid program for individuals who may refuse to work, who do have proton therapy covered for them. Is that the wow. world of picking winners yeah. and losers? Tell me yeah. what's not backwards about that. Yeah. Well, and when you look at the polling, I mean, uh, it doesn't matter uh, party affiliation Correct. or or philosophical. People agree. They agree with yeah, it. That's right. That they that people should work if they can. Right. Right. And and uh, I think to be clear, you're not saying people that have dependents or are disabled that they have to work in order to get these benefits. Absolutely you're saying not. The hundreds of thousands of people who are collecting a check. Um, need to demonstrate that they're trying to, you know, be yeah. on their own two feet and not yeah. twenty hours up. a week of either work, uh, work training, or even volunteering. You know, to, to, to put that effort in, yeah. I don't think is asking a lot, especially when the people funding it are working forty plus hours a week most times. Now, something else that I know you're passionate about is helping kids, uh, particularly yes. in inner cities. Uh, get access to a better education. Absolutely. Um, uh, talk about where, obviously, having gone to Catholic schools and seeing even your parents try to uh, make ends meet in order to do that, um, uh, what, what, what makes you so passionate about that particular issue as well? Well, A, there's no one better suited to make a decision of what's in the best interest of their kids in terms of educating them than families. And we now have a system that basically determines where you're going to school by your zip code or, or where you what district you live in, um, or if your parents have the means mm -hmm. to be able to do so. Uh, we have people that go to schools with bars on the windows and metal detectors, schools that have ridiculously low performance rates, and yet we're basically telling our families, you're not smart enough or you don't deserve. We'll take your money from yeah, you, yeah. but you don't deserve to make a choice that's in the best interest and of Harrisburg your children. And Harrisburg needs to send us even more money, right? Exactly, yeah. and it's a nonstop, keep feeding that same uh, monopoly on mm -hmm. education. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish we had a EITC back when I was there, but my parents still found a way, God bless them, um, for us to do that. Uh, but and that's the Education Improvement Tax Credit, something uh, yes. implemented back in 2001, uh, and it thankfully has grown, uh, but uh, it's, we're, we're talking about you know hundreds of thousands of kids rather than right. you know, uh, tens of hundreds of thousands. Bottom line is we like have that. children in this Commonwealth whose parents are literally entering lotteries. Yeah. to be selected for slots to have an alternative form of education, thousands of them being turned away. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't imagine what that's like for a parent having to send their child to a failing school. Or and a violent one. Or a I violent mean, yeah. school. Um, and 
there's things we need to fix. We need to keep growing EITC. We absolutely need an escalator because some of these schools are going out to, to, to advocate to get people to donate to this program and do much better than what the state even allows them mm -hmm. to be able to do. Um, but we are not meeting the needs of families in this Commonwealth or what's in the best interest of children if we're not giving them a choice. And I think we have a growing, uh, and some, some, with some individuals, a bipartisan belief that this is the direction to go and what's in the best interest of our children. I've seen it work firsthand, not just with my family. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen kids who have even come into juvenile corrections. And you know what? In the school district they came from, absolutely was not meeting their needs. Um, and they've gone to other type of alternative placement or alternative school, and they've gotten their life together. Mm -hmm. And I even know one in particular became a lawyer. Mm. You know, it's so there's so many success stories out there. But the bottom line is there's a need. Families are demanding it. There's too many success stories for us to ever turn around. Um, but I think more and more that ship's going to keep sailing yeah. in the right direction and someday that we'll have more full choice for our families in Pennsylvania. Well, and, and to me, um, it is one of those foundational things that we have to get right because when we look at the other uh, major cost drivers in the budget, uh, yes. we were talking about it, welfare, right, yep. human services. Uh, we haven't talked about corrections, but the common denominator amongst people trapped in those two systems is a lack of a good education. Right. I mean, that's one of the strongest factors. Absolutely. Uh, and so if we get the education component right, uh, we, we should yes. uh, have fewer people dependent on taxpayer support for their health care. Yeah. Uh, fewer people, you know, going into our correction system because they see uh, opportunities elsewhere. Right. And, when, well, you, and here's the other part of this. Families are much smarter than government wants to give them credit for. We give them the ability to choose to go to uh, pre, you know, preschool and daycares. They're smart enough to choose mm -hmm. those. We rely on them to choose where they want to go to college. But for some reason, we're stuck in this rut of K through 12. You're not smart enough. You must use this. Mm -hmm. And we all know with the lack of competition, that breeds higher cost. And, and so we're, we're going in the right direction. We have a ways to go. Um, it would certainly be helpful to have a governor who uh, would also share that same belief and having that choice for families. Um, but that this this issue is not going to go away because the bottom line is, is we need to do this for the students and what's in their best interest, not what's in the best interest of a school district. Well, we weren't able to get a lot of things that we would have liked to have seen in the last four years under Tom Wolf. I mean, he vetoed uh, major pension reform and yes. uh, liquor privatization that first year in office in 2015. He eventually, you guys uh, didn't give up, thankfully. Right. Uh, he did end up signing uh, you know, some modified versions of pension and, and liquor uh, reform. Um, as you look at the next four years, um, I guess in one way, which which Governor Wolf do you expect to see the 2015 <laughs> one or the uh, the 2018 one? And um, uh, what what kinds of things do you think you could get done that maybe, hey, he's not going to oppose us on these things and um, we can uh, see some progress? You know, I, I, I think that. All of us hope that we don't see Governor Wolf's original Tom Wolf that came out of the gates. Um, that to me was disastrous in many different ways. It costs yeah. school districts, counties, local governments, and the Commonwealth so much wasted money for a gentleman who ended up settling for something that if he would have agreed to the budget in June, he would have gotten more. Yeah. Um, and however, you know, he has nothing to lose now. 
You know, he's not shackled to having to face the voters again. So does he truly implement it? You know, well, case maybe he wants to be vice president to nominate. Oh, he, uh, you know, he, he, he very and Bob well Casey, could. Uh, ticket there. Uh. But it's amazing <laughs> where people literally will. You know, weeks. I'm just give you one example. Weeks before the election, he doesn't think recreational marijuana is right. for the Commonwealth. Yet, within what a yeah. month after his election, two months after his election, now he's thinking about now's the time. He says that we should look at recreational well, marijuana. Well, see, and here's my here's my theory on that. He's looking at the budget numbers because he's unwilling to reform our our welfare and system spending, and right. spending. Uh, he's looking for wherever he can find cash, and everybody's saying, "Hey." Uh, we legalize marijuana. There's our cash crop uh, that we can pick and pay for all these things. I, that's that's what I think. Well, uh, and that would be his history. Yeah. His other three budgets, in essence, there's basically a book of every type <laughs> of tax. You know, it could be on storage. It was on, yeah, it, it was on whatever. Every single yeah. thing, airplane repairs yes. and parts. And every time they try to put it back in, the answer to too many people in Harrisburg is we need to find more money. When in reality yeah. is, there is a gold mine of opportunity. You had talked about privatization yeah. earlier, and we did a lot of private privatization of things that I would say weren't core government functions yeah. that we could do, whether it was custodial services, facilities maintenance, engineering services, printing. Um, the list went on and on, and we saved so much money just on the county level. The state has so many opportunities, but there's special interests that always yeah. try to block that. There's a union for those kind of workers. <laughs> but the bottom line is, is we're not going to fix this until we take on the sacred cows, until we take on the special interests and realize that we're not in this business to make everybody happy. The solution will never be find another way to raise money, recreational marijuana or taxing airplane repairs, whatever it might be. The answer is in spending reform. And it's not only going to save you money. Typically, the reforms we're talking about also put people on the path to recovery, mm -hmm. stability, mm -hmm. jobs, and, and more success. And that's the beauty of it. But we resist that change in Pennsylvania. Is there a widespread understanding of these challenges that you face and those uh, you know, very clear solutions? Not easy. Right. Yeah. These aren't easy things. Like you said, there there's always an interest on the other side that's profiting off of some of these programs. Correct. Um, and so reforming them uh, gets to the, the, the business model that's uh, operating for yeah. them. So you have a, re a reticence to uh, take them on. But is it would you say that your colleagues uh, understand uh, these, uh, you know, very stark uh, financial realities and yeah. then the solutions to them? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I think that there's enough of them that we could get things done. Listen, I'm not a fool from the standpoint that I realize that we have divided government now. Mm -hmm. There's part of me wishes back when Republicans controlled everything, they could have gotten much more done, you know, when Governor Corbett was in. Um, but we have divided government. It's not going to be easy. There's always bills in almost all these areas to try to fix these things. They never seem to move. Mm. Uh, my belief is you put these things on the governor's desk. You pass them. You get them to his desk and make him explain himself what's as to best, why he's not. What's your best defense? A good, good hard uh, off. You're saying that to a defensive guy. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. So, we need but, you both as an offensive we, guy. That's right. That's right. But we, we absolutely need to keep putting these ideas on his desk. There was talk of last year of not passing work requirements because he might veto them yeah. anyway. Uh, or, and a whole host of other issues, sanctuary cities or whatever it might be. The bottom line is, is that we have a job to do. The account, you know, I feel like we look just as bad when we don't run a certain reform right. 
just because we think it's going to be yeah. vetoed, so why waste yeah. our time? My constituents don't think it's a waste of time. Yeah. You know, I told them I was going to go there and do it. Put the governor on the defensive, and maybe the people of Pennsylvania will say next time, you know what, we need an executive yeah. is actually going to sign this. Well, I think you did that with the pension reform. It was He vetoed it. Well, you didn't let up, and you said, all right, we'll come back, and we'll give you another try here, and he ended up signing it. Correct. So uh, to me, that, that I hope uh, that your colleagues uh, agree that, hey, well, let's keep going here putting these things on his desk that we know yeah. are going to not only save money, but I think save lives, uh, yeah. whether it's even education, yeah. uh, opportunity, or uh, welfare, helping people pursue their American dream. These are the things that we should be doing. We cannot keep turning our backs for political-related reasons to the things that are necessary. I'll give you another high-ticket one. Higher education reform. Mm. You know, we have institutions that are literally failing on probation with their credentials and we're giving them like $22,000 per student, even though they have a graduation rate of 6% mm. over four years. And meanwhile, we're taking away from those who are our gate, like the Millersvilles, the Westchesters, and others that are producing graduates. Thaddeus Stevens in my backyard is turning away 2,000 kids per year, over 2,000 employers. So what's needed is that connection with career and technology job skills. It's a no-brainer. Why are we giving money to this institution that's failing when our economy needs these types of skilled laborers now and the students are lined up at the door, the employers are lined up at the door, and we're saying no. And we own them, by the way. We own Thaddeus Stevens. That's the frustration. But again, there's so many opportunities. We can fix this. But I hope the governor sees past politics. I hope the governor just doesn't want to protect the status quo because there's going to be a lot of reforms coming his way on many different areas, Medicaid, higher education, making Pennsylvania more competitive to draw investment and job creation, which we typically resist and want to, and we lag behind other Rust Belt states, even implementing the Trump tax reforms seem to be, <laughs> we made that painful too. Um, we have the ability to do this. It's... Um, we can't now at this point control who's there. Governor Wolf is back, and uh, but so are we. Yep, that's right. Uh, you guys control what makes it to his desk and what doesn't. Absolutely. So, uh, well, I appreciate you, Senator Martin, for uh, taking the time. Uh, I appreciate uh, your your football and wrestling mentality you bring to these things because uh, we need more. It of helps it, right? up there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I wish we could on. do some headlocks though. You know, <laughs> I'd get more bills done. <laughs> I guarantee you, you would. Uh, so, hey, thanks for coming on Brews and Views. Uh, appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Matt. Anytime. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.